Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, as we continue the study of, of Genesis and uh, life just following the flood, we ask, God, that as we uh, look at this section, that you would help us by your spirit to understand uh, what is being said, what happened, the implications of, of the events that are, are shared in today's story. And I pray, Father, that you would help us um, just to see how these things apply to our life and the implications that remain uh, until this day. And so we are grateful, Lord, uh, for the work that you are doing in our life. And we look to you, Lord, for, uh, for focus now and, and help us to, to get into the story. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would lead us now. And it's in Christ's good name, I pray. Amen. All right, so as we look at this section, we, we see the first one, then, the first word, then. And, and we have to pause just to sort of refresh, refresh our memories. Last week, it was a mouthful. We covered a lot of territory. Like we, we flew over the flood account. Uh, I caught my breath by Wednesday. And, and just to sort of recap what had happened, uh, from the fall of Adam and Eve, we then see two sons, Cain and Abel. We see the first murder. We see the total rapid spread of, of the sinful nature of man, that it had become so widespread that God's heart was broken just looking at humanity. And so then he gives this, this warning to humanity through, through Noah, the one righteous man, and says, in 120 years, I'm going to destroy the earth. And you're going to have to build this ark. And it will care for you and provide for you. And so he built the ark. The rain started coming down, something that they had never seen before. Rain came down and the floods came up. And the earth was completely flooded. He spent 377 days on the ark, approximately, and then last week the ark rested, and they opened the door, and they came out of the ark. And that's sort of where we, where we find ourselves in the story, and, and trying to imagine, like, what would we be thinking if we were Noah? Like God said to build this ark, to do this, to sort of prepare for what's about to happen. And then you see waters sort of come up over the earth. You see everything annihilated. And then it just keeps going and going and going. And, and, and it was like they were lost at sea. And if you read stories, I mean, there's a bunch of, well, it just depends on your perspective. There's a bunch of great stories of these people who were like lost at sea and the, the hardship they go through and the, the worrying about like, how are they going to sustain themselves? How are they going to keep going? And here, Noah, after like a month, two months, three months, 
Are they going to be able to sustain? How in the world will the land come back? What will it look like? And I just, I imagine during this whole time period, just like great fear, great worry, like just the unknown about the future, like what's going to happen? And then all of a sudden, the waters start receding because God didn't forget about Noah. They exited the ark, and then we read, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So now this is the first mention of an altar. There's, there's no mention of an altar. Some, some suspect that, that maybe back with Cain and Abel that, that there was an altar that they had then, but we don't really know. This is the, this is the first time. And so we see that, that Noah in this new beginning, this sort of uh, do-over that God is giving him, the first thing he does is he builds this, offer, this, uh, this altar and he's going to make an offering. Uh, Tuesday is Titus's, my son, my, my baby's, his eighth birthday. Some of you were around when he was born. A lot of you weren't around when, when, when he was born. But it was a super tragic event. Like it was a horrific thing. Uh, the night prior, it was a Saturday night. Anna started having like super bad bleeding, like like really, really bad bleeding. And then through the, you know, what seemed like an eternity, we didn't really recognize how serious everything was. And I just thought, I called one of my buddies at the Escondido Police Department. I'm like, hey man, can you just give me a Code 3 escort? Turns out that guy was at the bar and didn't tell me, but he'd like, he's like, hey, just go to fire station two. There's going to be an ambulance waiting for you. And so this whole thing sort of unraveled before our eyes. Before I know it, like Anna's in surgery. I have no clue what's happening. The, the blurriness of my memory, it was like a movie. It was like something super surreal. And I remember thinking like, God, if you take them both, I'll still worship you. Like I remember having this like, this like feeling inside of me and saying this, but not, you know, of course, not knowing if I'd be able to fulfill, like if that actually happened. But in that moment, it's like, okay, God, they're in your hands. Like whatever happens, happens. And I trust you. And then as the whole thing transpired, I, like it was like the door shut, they took them away. And then the nurse came out and said, the baby's okay. And then she left. And I was like, they didn't say anything about my wife. And, and then you know, uh, then a little bit later, they brought out the baby, and we were, like, super excited to see Titus. And, and the nurse is like, your wife is okay. Everything's fine. And, and in, like, that moment, we were in the hallway of Palomar Hospital, and it was me and it was my, my in-laws. And we just kind of stopped and said, I know you need to get this baby to where you're going, but we just want to pray right now. And so then my father-in-law, I'm like, I can't do it, but you pray. And it was like we had this, it was like we had our little like altar moment of like, God, this is your kid. Like you spared them and we just want to worship you. Like we didn't take his life, like we didn't do the full altar situation, but, <laughs> but, but in our minds, this was like a, like this kid is yours and, and our life is yours. And it was this, this profound moment because we recognize that like, like how helpless we are. And so here's Noah. He's getting off the ark. He doesn't know what life is going to look like. Everything's been wiped out. He now has this 
boat that's stuck on the side of a mountain, and I'm just imagining like everything drippy and muddy, and like what's this world going to look like? And so he 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 pre- creates this altar. Like you know what we know about altars is it's like this flat surface that's sort of raised like a stage, and then they would sacrifice the animals. And so then he goes up there with the animals. We know that of the animals, there were two of every kind. But then of the, the, the animals that were for sacrifices, there was a little bit extra. And so he takes one-seventh, uh, basically one of each of these seven animals for sacrificing, and he, he makes a sacrifice to the Lord. So it wasn't just a sacrifice for the animals, but also this is a sacrifice for Noah. Be, because like, here he's sacrificing something, and is there going to be enough to sustain them? Like, is there going to be enough food? Maybe we should keep these animals to reproduce and to keep going, but they're going to take one-seventh of these animals, and they're going to slaughter them. So we see this, this sacrifice as an offering to God. We see this as like a sacrificing of, like, gratitude to God, and we see this sacrifice of of like they're consecrating themselves and the future to God. Like, God, everything we have is yours our life is in you. Everything we have is about you. And so they have these fears about the unknown, but they're going to place everything before God. And it's, it's this, beautiful, this beautiful picture in today's chapter. Like, however, as I read through this chapter, I can't, I can't shake knowing what's coming in the next chapter. Like, we're going to see drifting. We're, we're going to see this this huge commitment before the Lord only to see them drift a chapter away. And it's like the whole Old Testament is the people of Israel saying, God will do whatever you want. They're serious. They, they make their altar. They make their sacrifice. They make their vows. And then you flip the page, and then they're worshiping idols. And it's such the, the tale of the human heart. Last week, last Sunday, there was like the Super Bowl, and we were invited over to go to a barbecue at Matthew's house. It wasn't really about the Super Bowl. It was about the barbecue. And there was like the game was in the other room. And, and uh, the kids had these, what do you guys call those little things with the feet? The easy rollers. So these little easy rollers, you like, well, I was riding in the kids one. And you like really, you really scrunch up. And then as you move your feet back and forth, the thing will like wiggle around. And so the kids are like doing loops around the house. And like our boys were given a stern warning by their mother about, you stay on the top. They're, they have this really nice driveway that goes into like nothing. And it's like, do not go down the hill just around the house. And so it's like, okay, so I like go, I'm going to try the little kid's little scooter. I'm going to do it. And I hop in Rhett's and, and Rhett's like, dude, Pastor Gunner, you're like killing it. And he was like, I earned his respect. So it was like worth it. And, and then... Then Matthew says, hey, we have some adult-sized ones. You want to give those a shot? And I'm like, yeah. Like, and so they pull out the adult-sized one. He's like, listen, these are drifters. I'm like, what's that mean? He's like, well, the back end can kind of like spin out. I'm like, okay, we'll give that a shot. So I, of course, honor Anna's rules. And I'm like, I'm just going to stay up by the house. And Matthew was apparently talking like, no, no, you should go down the driveway. But Anna said, no, like, I don't like this isn't like we shouldn't be doing this. And then I'm sitting there, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're obeying ourselves. Us, me and Jeremiah were there, and we were just looking at each other. And all of a sudden, I see Jeremiah's eyes get real big. Matthew spun out, crashed and burned. And all I see is this big, like, 
dust cloud. And I'm like, oh, man, I can get all the old, like, doesn't matter how old you are. If you're a little guy, you, I can hear the little boy giggle. And it's like, and so we, of course, are like pointing and laughing. And then we're like, oh, we haven't asked. Is he okay? And then it's like, he, when we see that he stands up, he's like, I'm okay. You guys saw that? Yeah, we saw that. And, and, uh, but it's like the Christian life. Like, so often we like, here I am, God, only a month, a week, we get a distraction, we get a new job, we get a new change of schedule, a love interest pops up, like any little thing pops into our life, and then we're like crashing and burning on the side our, with our faith. And so when I read this story of Noah with his altar and making this sacrifice, which we know that the author of Hebrews says that Noah does all this stuff by faith, and Noah is not perfect, there's only one perfect person in the Bible, and that's Jesus Here's this man of faith, and yet I know he's about to crash and burn. And that weighs, like, on my heart. And that there is something that, like, for us, as we make these vows and really surrender our lives, our, this relationship that we have with God is a marathon, and we need to focus on the little things and sustaining over the course of our lives, not making some big show and big sacrifice. I think these moments are super important. Like, I think this is what, like, baptism is. I think that there are these moments in our life when we say, you know what, God did this, and I need to recognize, and I've made a vow to him, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay the course. And when these distractions come up, we need to remind ourselves of the dangers because basically next week, for those of you that don't know, Noah's going to find himself drunk in a tent naked. <laughs> like, like, seriously, like, this is where the, story's go- this is, where the story is going with Noah. And so this, like, we see this, but Noah's going to, like, crumble. And I do think that this act of worship, like this sacrifice to say, like, it's not always easy, God, to follow after you. My flesh is strong. I'm prone to wander. Like, I'm prone to get off course. Like, here's my life, and I really need your help to stay on track. And so then we come to verse 21 and 22. We'll stick to the good part right now. We'll deal with next week, next week. Then the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, which makes total sense to me. I mean, who doesn't love barbecue? Like, there's just, there's like, I can smell like wood. Like, I smelled, somebody had a fire going when I came to church, and I'm just like, oh, it smells like barbecue. Because they're like burning oak or something. And I'm like, I just want to eat. And, and it's like, I think there's the biblical case that barbecue is good. And, and, and I mean, it's like he smelled the soothing aroma of, of Noah roasting these animals on the altar. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And so we see this, this soothing aroma, and then we, we are given insight into God's thoughts. So in the New American Standard, it says that the Lord said to himself, I'm not sure what your translation reads, it, it literally uh, renders, now I'm thinking about barbecue, and I'm thinking about, uh, it, it literally says the Lord like said in his heart, 
Like he's thinking this. He hasn't said this to Noah. We're getting insight into the heart of God and his, his mercifulness and his compassion. And he sees what's happened. He sees the sacrifice of Noah. He smells the aroma. And he says to himself, you know what? Mankind, since Adam and Eve, has become sinful. The total depravity of man is, is the, the theological doctrine that we're, that we're speaking of, that I believe that when Adam and Eve sinned, their DNA changed and man became sinful. And we sin because we're sinners by nature. We're not sinners because we committed some act of sin. And so God sees this, that the intent of man's heart is evil. Like the cycle is going to repeat itself. God is not surprised by what the world is going to turn into. Yet we see this God that says, you know what, I'm not going to do that again. And he says two, two things that he's never going to do. Never again, number one, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And never again, number two, never again will I destroy every living thing. And then there's this sort of like poem at the end that's, that can be confu- confusing in verse 22. And there's a lot of um, you know, commentators some indicate that, that because of the rain and the change of atmosphere, that suddenly for the first time, the earth is now going to experience seasons. Like it's not thought that there were seasons beforehand because of the great canopy over. And now there's going to be uh, summer and winter, this cold and heat, the, the changing of seasons. And, and, and the thrust of this is God is saying that as long as the earth remains, I'm not going to do this. And he's going to make a covenant with Noah. This is uh, one of the, the handful of covenants that we see in the Old Testament. And so as we go, as I turn the page over to the next page and get into chapter 9, God's going to begin to sort of explain the new system in this new world. He's made his, 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 Noah's made his, his sacrifice. God, we see behind the scenes what God is thinking, yet Noah doesn't know any of this yet. And God is going to establish sort of a new order for, uh, for Noah and his sons and their families. How is life going to go about? Um, one, one guy, he's called this the new rules of the game. This is how life is going to be. And so in verse 1, we read, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's repeating the command that he gave Adam and Eve, that the whole situation, we are back at the the whiteboard got wiped clean, and now we're starting over. Be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And I love that God is a God of do-overs. This is like a fresh start. I don't even have a clue of how many do-overs God has given me in my life. I know that there's a bunch. Gunner screws up. God says, okay, Gunner, let's go back to the drawing board. Let's start over. Let's start fresh. And I love that God is this God of do-overs, that he, he continually pours his grace upon us, that he's merciful to us. And he says, okay, let's start over. Let's be fruitful and multiply. Then in verse 2, he's going to say that the, the nature and the relationship with animals has changed. He says, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the, of the earth and on every bird of the sky and with everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea into your hand they are given. 
And so he says, animals are going to be afraid of you. Like when you approach an animal out there, they're no longer going to be your buddy. They're going to run and tear. And it's so funny to me. I mean, not funny, but like Valley Center, there's a lot of horse people. And I'm not going to do a show of hands, but we know you're there. <laughs> like, Debbie's, like Debbie's right in front of me, so I'm trying not to make eye contact. But it's like, I don't want to say horses are dumb because that's not what I'm trying to convey. <laughs> but it's like, why do horses let us get away with the things that we get away with? Like, why are they letting us ride them? Why are they letting us, any horse, if they looked at me and said, I'm going to bite you or kick you, I'm like, no, 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 you're bigger than me, you're good. You're like, but it's like, there's this like, like, why is a hippo afraid of me? Why is a rhino afraid? Like, why would they see you in the wild? Why will they run unless you pin them into a corner? Not that I've ever done that. But it's like, these animals are terrified of us. And it's, it wasn't that way beforehand. And now they're terrified of us. And God says, things have changed in the animal nature. The fear, I've placed fear within them. We read prophecy looking at the new nature, the new heavens and the new earth as we go forward in time. When Jesus comes back, we're told that things are going to revert back to the way they were pre-flood. But for now, animals are afraid of us unless they've like been domesticated. But that goes against the nature. And even a domesticated animal is afraid of you. Like we have this new neighbor dog, Maverick. He wants to kill me. Like I try to see him and it's like, like, don't be afraid of me, buddy. And I've asked my neighbor, hey, can I throw him treats? And he's like, yeah, yeah, he'll be your buddy in a couple weeks. It's been a couple weeks. He's not my friend yet. And I'm really trying to like, I'm giving him everything. I'm like, here's my social security number. Here's like, whatever. Like, is there anything we can do so that you don't look like you want to kill me because you're afraid of me? Maybe one day, I don't know. Everything changes with the animals in verse 2. Then we come to verse 3. <laughs> and it's almost like he gives the animals a head start. Like I see this as like a, kid, a, a game of hide-and-go-seek. Is it hide-and-go-seek or hide-and-seek? Hide but I call it hide-and-go-seek. I don't know. Um, verse 3, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. <laughs> I give all to you as I gave the green plants. Only you shall not eat the flesh with its life and its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. And so he's saying, okay, I gave you plant to eat pre-flood, but now you're a carnivore. You can eat animals. And so it's like, he said, ready or not, here I come. I hope you guys all got away. And so now he put fear in them, and now man can eat them. So the game is afoot. And, and he says, you can eat them. It's okay to eat these animals, all of them, but do not eat the lifeblood. And there's something about the blood and animal and man that's protected by God. Some have suggested that God has now turned man into this aspect of eating animals because um, that in this new world, that man needs to know that in order for him to, sus- to sustain himself, it requires death on something. And, and there's a lot of theories. I don't know. I like barbecue, so I'm not so upset about this, and I didn't really ponder it a whole bunch. But then as the story is unfolding, and this whole thing about, like, okay, now you can kill animals, there's a distinction between man and animal. And God says, not so fast when it comes to humanity, because man's life shall be protected, in verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed, for, for in the image of God he made man. And so humanity 
is separated from the creation of, of animals and everything else. There's something special about mankind. And what we're told is that humanity carries the image of God. And so in this new section of marching orders, we see for the first time that human government has been initiated, that God has now delegated sort of authority to humanity to protect human life. Um, Man's life is protected because it's been created in God's image. And I think that like we as a church or me as an individual, like we're doing the walk for life, this whole thing with alternatives uh, to, to raise money for this medical clinic that is there to help those that find themselves in, in, in a crisis pregnancy and that, the, that individuals can go in there for free and meet people who love Jesus and they share Christ and they give them hope. Uh, and we believe that this is what God wants, like from, from, from conception to natural death. Like this week on, on Thursday, like I had to race down to my 87-year-old dad who got, went to the ER for something. It was super scary. And it's like, you know, like, like it'd be very easy to say, oh, let's just put him down because it's like rough. And it's like, no, 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 we don't think that way because he's, he's, he's created in God's image and we love him and we care for him and we're supposed to like care for our aging. And then we see this whole, like, within this, because of the protection of man's life, capital punishment is created, instituted, and it's never been rescinded in, in, in all of the Bible. That capital punishment exists because human life is valued. So if an individual murders another individual, his life is to be taken. And the Levitical law is going to expand upon this and explain, like, there's a difference, like, in war. There's a difference in self-defense. There's, there's very clear, like, guidelines that are given. But as we fast forward through the New Testament, we'll come to Romans chapter 13. And Romans chapter 13 explains to us or expands upon this. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they that have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise for the same. Okay, I read a whole lot. We're to be in subjection over the, under the authorities. The authorities have been placed there because God has placed them there. And then ultimately, when I read about government's role in human lives from a biblical perspective, the only thing that I see it being there for is for protecting humanity. That like if somebody hurts another human, there's to be an accountability sake. That, that if somebody takes somebody's life, then their life is to be taken. And he goes on to say, verse 4, for it, speaking of the government, is a minister of God for your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. This sword is a double-edged sword. Its, its sole existence was for execution. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. 
an individual does evil, God has created the authorities above them to inflict his wrath on that individual to protect humanity. And so this is one of those things for those, for our brothers and sisters in law enforcement, they truly are like the first ministers of God that we see in the Bible. Like they're a gift from God and we can have all of our complaints about our government and our authority, but we are so blessed to live in a place where we have like cops and, and those that we can call 911. If you have any criticism, I would invite you to go somewhere where it doesn't exist. Like go to Sudan for the weekend and just live life there for a weekend. And I think your views will change. From a biblical perspective, when all things are firing as they're supposed to be, the authorities above us are there to actually protect us and, and to provide restraint for evil that is so widespread. And then he goes on to say, and he closes, therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So, so we want to be in subjection to the government's sake, not only just for wrath, like I don't want to violate this because then I'm going to face like the consequence of the government, which God tells me that he's placed over me and their wrath is, is his wrath on me. So I don't want to just be uh, subjective or in, subjective is not the word I'm looking for. Uh, submissive to them is the word I was looking for. For, for fear of what they might do to me, but for conscience sake. Because if we understand as followers of Christ that God has placed them over us, then our submitting to them isn't just for the wrath that can be placed on us. It's also because if we violate them, for the believer who understands this, we are actually going against God. And your conscience should trouble you. Like, if you violate the authorities that are above you, there should be this, like, Lord, I'm going against you. And there's times in the Bible, there's, there's limited times where we see that God endorses rebellion against the government. It, it almost exclusively is limited when the government forces you to cross a line where it would be disobedience to God. And when that line is crossed, even in that moment, historically, when we look at these cases where we see that person was right in violating the authorities above them, there's some sort of like hesitation because they recognize the line that they're crossing over. Okay, I'm a little bit off track here, but not, not so much. Back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Where did the government come from? The government came from God. Where did capital punishment come from? It came from God. Why does capital punishment exist? Why should it exist? This is something that's up for debate and under attack in our state around the nation. Because God says, whoever takes another man's life, he should lose his or her life because the life which he took had the image of God imprinted on it. And so human life is valued. And so in order to preserve human life, God has created this like ultimate punishment. Very different than when Cain killed Abel. Now things have changed. And then verse 7 we read, As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth, Abundant, abundantly and multiply within it. So these are the marching orders. 
Then God's going to give this covenant. We're going to fly over this. Um, Everything that God thought earlier about what he wasn't going to do to the earth or to man, he is now speaking to Noah in a covenant, the Noahic covenant, between verses 8 through 17. So God speaks this to Noah. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. Of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you. And all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. So he says, I'm never going to have a flood. Now we see floods. If you're from the south, there's floods. You can buy flood insurance for your house. Localized floods are different than what we're talking about. This is a flood where the whole of the earth was underwater. And he says, never again will I do this. Neither shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. I just imagine that Noah was so like happy to get this instruction. Can you imagine Noah? Because before the flood, rain didn't exist. He goes to 377 days. He gets off the ark. Life is different. The environment changed. Now there's going to be rain. I can only imagine the first rain following the flood like, oh no, <laughs> this is like, like we pray for rain. I don't think Noah was praying for rain. What I imagine when they saw their first rain, it was like hearing reports of individuals in Haiti being terrified to go back into buildings after the earthquakes. Like people in Haiti don't want to go back into buildings because they remember what happened to the buildings during the earthquakes. And I can imagine when that rain started coming down, the, whenever the first rain following this whole event was, and I could see Noah and his boys saying, God said he would never do it again. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. God said he would never do it again. So I think this would like give great comfort to them. Then God said in verse 12, this is a sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you, every living creature with you. For all successive generations, I set my bow, rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy the flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the flesh that is on earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. I don't remember the last time like, that I saw a rainbow, but I know that every time we see a rainbow, people go crazy. Like there's something just like magnificent about a rainbow. And it's like it stops there and it's like, that is absolutely beautiful. And so when we see these rainbows, we need to remind ourselves, you know, that is God's promise that he's never again going to do this. It's a reminder of the mercifulness of God, that God is a God that withholds wrath. And I don't know when the whole rainbow flag thing started, but I learned about the rainbow flag 
situation, you know, the pride flag, before I knew about this story. And then I became a Christian, and then I started to figure out the Bible. I wasn't raised in a Christian home, so I didn't know. Like, I just didn't, like Noah's Ark, it was about a boat. Not, I, didn't, I, don't, I didn't pay attention. I don't know. But I knew about the rainbow flag. I knew that. And then I was like, why in the world? Like, like, the, like it just fits this story so much. Like, here the rainbow is a symbol of a promise. And yet humans take that promise and they, they parade it around, shaking their fists at God. But because of the promise he made, I don't know that I have many thoughts other than like this, this whole story. Like we see God's covenant. It's conditional on God's God. It's not conditional on man living up to any, like God says, the condition of man's heart is evil from a young age. He says, but I'm going to make this promise based on me because I'm a God of do-overs and restarts. And I, I love this, that salvation is unilateral, that when we come to the cross, the only thing we bring to the table is our sin. It's not about anything that we've done that God saves us. God has done everything in the cross that Jesus died on the cross, that he absorbed the wrath that was due you and me. He absorbed it in full, and we're told that God has forgiveness available. All you have to do is accept. It's based on him alone, not based on your works. You're you're saved by his work on the cross. You're sustained by his work on the cross your salvation's not conditional upon you becoming a good Christian and doing all the right things and tucking in your shirt and like whatever it is that you think being a good Christian looks like. Our salvation is conditioned solely based on what Jesus did. This is that covenant. So many of these covenants in the Old Testament are unilateral. God says it's going to be this way because of me and my nature. I'm the one making the guarantee behind the promise, not you. We see in this story the uniqueness of man that God views us differently than all of the rest of creation. This, this should shape how we view humanity. It's super difficult to like really love on people. Like there, There's a lot of jerks out there. There's a lot of people that are filled with evil. There's a lot of people doing the wrong thing. But we as Christians need to to orientate our thinking as these are individuals for whom Christ died. They are created in the image of God. And God has called us to reach out to them, to love them, to share the gospel with them, because God did the same thing to us. When I look at this story, I just think about the altar of our lives. In Romans chapter 12, the first two verses, these are some of the most well-known verses in the Bible. Paul pleads with the Romans, "Therefore, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. All the sacrifices up to the cross, it was an animal being sacrificed. Then when Jesus was sacrificed on the cross, Everything changed. The animal sacrifices went away. They're of no value. Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice we need. Now, the sacrifice is to give him your life, to make your life a sacrifice, how you live. 
acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, or you could translate that your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We offer our lives. We, we recognize our propensity to drift. It's the little things that get us off course. And so today, I just, my prayer is that you would offer your life to God and say, God, help me to stay on course because there's so many temptations outside of me. There's so many temptations within me. Like we see this in Noah. It's so easy to see other people like drifting off course. Like I just imagine the whole story with Matthew drifting and crashing. Like, I guarantee you, if that was one of my boys, like, going down, Anna would have been over there in a nanosecond, grabbing him by the back of the ear, stop! We watch him, and we all like, oh, yeah, this is going to be good. <laughs> and, and it's like, when you start walking with God, and you see people coming along, and you see, like, maybe it's your own child drifting from the Lord, or a friend drifting from the Lord, it's so easy to see it in other people. But so often, you don't see it, we don't see it in ourselves, like Matthew's like, I'm going to do this fine. And then there's this big cloud, you know, and it crashed and burned, you know. And, and so it's so easy for us to be blind to our own drifting. And my prayer is that God would help us as we give our lives to him to help us to, to be aware of our drifting, that we would have friends and people in our life that have the courage to speak into your life and say, hey, I see you drifting and I'm worried about you. Because we need, like we all need it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you, Lord, for this relationship that we have with you. We, we thank you, Lord, that our relationship with you isn't based upon our own performance, our own uh, doing good deeds, but it's based upon your promise to us. And so, Father, we pray that as we go about our days, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to, to have just clear insight on who we are as individuals, that, that we would recognize our propensity to drift, that you would show us our need for Jesus, that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed upon him, and that we would go the distance. We thank you, God, that you've given us the spirit who... He convicts us when we get off course. We thank you for the fellowship of the body, that there are people who can speak into our lives and encourage us and help us to stay on track. Father, we pray that you would really help us to go the distance and that when we offer ourselves to you, that we would be able to, to really give of ourselves and our hearts, that we would be like Noah, not perfect, but a man of faith. And so, Lord, we thank you that you, who began a good work in our lives, will continue it, that you will continue perfecting us and molding us into the image of Christ. We love you, God, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.